Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason. I'm a guy in long-term recovery. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And today we're here with Stephanie. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi. (laughs) I always want to say I'm an addict named Jason. That whole long-term recovery thing just throws me off. I was trying to figure out what I was going to say, and I'm going to go with, I'm Stephanie. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Ooh, a recovered alcoholic. Cool. Now we need an episode to argue that that's not a thing. (laughs) And I was thinking about that, and it's because my situation is no longer hopeless. Ah, it's so interesting. I love the recovered versus recovering versus in recovery debate, honestly, mm-hmm. just because it's interesting. I, I don't truly, at the end of the day, give a fuck what anybody says about what yeah. they personally identify as. But I actually heard a, a group of a few guys on the Milk and Whiskey podcast have the debate and i was like man i just wish i was there i want to be in this debate (laughs) just to argue a point yeah Yeah, just because it's fun right because i I think everybody's got valid points like Mm -hmm. every side has some real good points to it but it is interesting Mm -hmm. you know whenever i hear somebody say that they're in recovery i'm like have you learned nothing you know (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny so i i guess for me i feel recovered from the substance use but I don't consider my original problem to be the substance use. Like because I identify as an addict that encompasses mm-hmm. all the different ways that addiction can interfere in my life. And I don't feel recovered from all of them. That's for fucking sure. Like I still struggle with anything. I, I, I'm addicted to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I spend a lot of time doing this every week and it like takes front and center precedence over other shit I want to do. Mm. So it's ruining my life. Yeah. Does it have negative consequences? Didn't we have a? It has to have negative consequences. I mean, some. My family would probably say yes. What are you doing? Is it life-threatening negative consequences? Yeah. Because mm. I feel like you could argue the levels of negative consequences. Say how bad is it really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so we have Stephanie with us here today because we're going to talk about the mental health of children. And in specific, this is like the mental health of our children as parents who are recovered or in recovery, depending on how you look at it. How do we handle? Because, look, we we know this is a generational thing. We know all this kind of stuff gets passed down. Trauma can get passed down from generations even before us. Substance use, addiction, however you want to refer to it, mental health in general gets passed down from generation to generation. It runs rampant through families. This is probably something if you have children you are going to end up dealing with at some level of the spectrum right it might be a very mild your kid has some mild symptoms of mental health or it could be some extreme cases where you know many people i've heard tell the story that their kids get into drug and they lose them sometimes or the struggle goes on and so that is what we we're going to talk about today. It seems a very relevant topic, way more relevant and close to home than I realized when I thought this would be a good idea for a topic. Stephanie actually was 
telling me about her situation back in early November, I believe it was. I think it was. And I was like, oh my God, you should totally come on and we should talk about that. It seems really relevant. And then I had my own situation, you know, like two weeks later, which was odd as hell. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to be alive and recovered? How I got to be alive and recovered. Let's see. Well, that's always such a hard place to start. I guess you I would were born say at a young age. I know. One <laughs> night when two people really love each other, right? Uh, so let's see. I started drinking when I was about 17. My parents are divorced, and I grew up with a lot of feelings of uh, lack of security. A lot of feelings of insecurity growing up. It just kind of feeling feeling less than and like I wasn't good enough. You know, there was some some abuse in the household as well. You know, and when you're a kid, that's very hard to process and deal with. And you're completely powerless in those situations. And then I tried alcohol and it tasted delicious mm. and it made all those feelings go away. Just like anything. I mean, it was great until it wasn't, you know, and then you just kind of fast forward 12 years and... I had some self-destructive behaviors before I started drinking when I was 17. I overdosed on medications because I felt like my parents didn't love me anymore. And then when I was in the military, um, I had cut my wrist several times when I was getting drunk on the base because I was just so disgusted with myself and like just where I was at in life. Towards the end of my drinking, I remember I was standing in the kitchen and my husband I felt like he wasn't paying attention to me because everything like hinged on how much attention I was getting. And so I was standing there threatening to cut my wrists if he didn't pay attention to me. Mm. And I was just miserable. And I was in that spot where I was too scared to kill myself, but I didn't want to live anymore because I didn't know that there was any other way. When I was in the military, I got sent to a 30-day rehab, but I was only 18, so that didn't really do anything. And then towards the end of my drinking, I went to an AA meeting and I didn't like it. I felt that it was super cultish and everybody was too happy and I didn't like it. It made me really uncomfortable. So I went for two weeks and I decided that I learned everything I needed to learn. And then I went back out and I lost two more weeks of my life. <laughs> and then I finally came back. And like in the big book, it talks about like I was basically beaten into a state of submission because... I had no idea how to live. So I started going to meetings. I went like six days a week for the first year because I always drank at home. So I went to meetings instead. So I went to work, I went to meetings, and I came back home. You know, I went through the steps, but I still had a hard time because the meetings that I went to, they, they talked about God a lot. I guess if I had to choose something to identify with, like I, I guess I would say I'm an atheist for the sake of a label. And I always found it so insulting when they would be like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, the doorknob can be your higher power. And I'm like, what is that? What does that even mean? <laughs> and it really bothered me. And it got to the point where it felt like if I didn't subscribe to like what they were selling, that like my sobriety like wasn't valid enough. And I think a lot of that ties into my own feelings of feeling less than and stuff like that. So I kind of went off on my own path. And. I started reading a lot of books about like awareness and mindfulness and just trying to be like the best version of yourself and realizing that you're not your thoughts. And because I remember hearing you guys talking about that and how like you're the observer Yeah. and just kind of going from there. And oddly enough, when I kind of trekked off was when I found this podcast <laughs> and I started listening to it 
And when I heard Billy, when I heard you like talking and sitting, I was like, oh my God, it's somebody like <laughs> me. Like it just, it made me feel so good to finally hear somebody like share those same thoughts. And so the big thing now is I got into psych nursing and I work with addicts and alcoholics and that's essentially my service work. And I absolutely love it. It keeps it green for me, but it just, it lets me see where I started from. And it really helps me to see that it's not just about the drugs or the alcohol. It's about all of the emotions and the trauma that was underneath that. And until we learn how to like dissolve those things, then we're always going to choose drugs or alcohol. I have so many comments and I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> Are we a recovery modality now? <laughs> That's funny. I was thinking, how did you relapse after your two weeks in AA? I, I thought you only needed two weeks to work the 12 steps in AA. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, I decided that I had learned everything I needed to learn and that I would be fine. And I remember we went to our friend's house that night and we had a bonfire and I was sitting there drinking and I was talking about the fact that I had been in AA oh. the last two weeks. I was like, I don't know why I'm sitting here drinking right now. You know, this is terrible. I was supposed to learn more, but it's because I realize now I wasn't ready. Mm. I wasn't ready to deal with my stuff, you know, and even now, like, I have, I celebrated three years in September and I went back to therapy, you know, because I'm not as far along in my emotional sobriety as I wanted to be. So like we're dealing with traumas from the past, dealing with how to deal with my kids because I lack compassion mm. and my yeah. husband will be the first one to tell you that, you know, so it's, um, it's a big one and I'm learning a lot. I got back on medicine again, which has been really helpful. Right. So yeah, my brain just kind of like leveled back out again. And and what alcohol did you drink that tasted good? I was really I was like, what the? What was you I, drinking? Wine well, coolers? No, uh, nothing so tacky. I, I no, drank wine coolers. <laughs> I uh, whiskey and coke. Oh, rum and coke. Ugh. Whatever got me drunk or faster, because yeah. the whole point was just to disappear. So I whatever right. would get me there faster was what I did. My father was a rum and coke drinker. And for my very short bar drinking stint, which was extremely short because mm. I was a mess. But it was rum and coke. But I, I never, ever thought alcohol tasted good. Not once. Oh, <laughs> see, I loved it. I love really? drink it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. disgusting. Wrong with you people. <laughs> <laughs> so we're glad to have you here. I'm glad for people like you that... Inform me that 12 steps isn't the only way to go. I'm thrilled with this podcast just to be able to do it because it's fun for me, but it's also been so informative of how much else there is out there, right? How small my worldview was. I remember being exposed just to the idea that NA, like I came in sponsor, hardcore, all that great stuff. And it was like, yeah, one program, one disease, one fellowship, you know, like one solution for your, everything in your life. And, and then it was like, you know, through therapy and being exposed to like, if one 12 step fellowship's good, how come five isn't better? Right. And I was like, okay, let's try that theory for a while. And, and, and I love that. And now just being exposed to the world beyond 12 steps at all. Like that's not the only way to recover or be recovered or I, I need all that right and I don't tell you frequently enough generally everyone who comments comments that what you said was good <laughs> I, I'm like comic relief or something I don't know <laughs> Stephanie yeah reaches out frequently and, and talks about oh my god Billy mentioned this in episode yeah. Billy mentioned that and like fuck Billy <laughs> <laughs> I really do appreciate the fact that you reached out and reached out to us and, and we've been able to have conversations 
one of those interesting side conversations happened to be that you reached out that you were struggling in early November because of a situation with your child. Do you want to fill in the audience about that? Sure. Uh, So one of my children's name is Brianna. When I got sober, she was 10. For the majority of her life, she was basically emotionally neglected, for lack of a better way to say it. Because as soon as I would come home, I would start drinking right away and I would send her away from me, you know, and I would have her use electronics or whatever it is I needed to do to just get her away from me so that I didn't have to deal with being a mom. There's been several times over the years where she told me where I've said some not very nice things to her, but because I'm a blackout drinker, I don't remember. But it emotionally stunted her tremendously. And her older sister took care of her. She, you know, cooked for her, made sure she got her showers, like she pretty much did the whole thing. So Brie didn't have that support, which oddly enough was something that I didn't have as a kid either. Mm -hmm. And it's like those cycles, how they continue. So after I got sober, I was looking at my kid and I'm like, man, she's like, she's kind of goofy. Like I couldn't figure out exactly what it was, but I noticed that in social situations, like she very rarely makes eye contact. You know, she's very isolative to herself. Um, She has a super flat affect when she talks. She uses the wrong tenses for words. And I'm like, man, what is going on with my kid? And so first I thought that maybe she was on the spectrum. I thought it was just like a social thing. And I took her to go get tested. And it was hard because they kept asking all these questions about when she was a kid. And I was like, I was drunk. And they kept saying, what were her milestones? And I, I have no idea. Right. So they ended up diagnosing her with anxiety, which I said, okay, that's fair. We went back home and just kind of went, everything was fine for a while. And then um, she just started declining. Like she got very isolative to herself. She was having trouble in school. She has a little bit of like an obsessive personality. So she was kind of overwhelming her friends and then they didn't want to be friends with her anymore. So then she started going online and saying that she wanted to kill herself. Her life was over. You know, it had no meaning. She should just die. She's a disappointment to her parents because she's always messing up. So we found all of those things online, which she had been sneaking online to do this too, which and we had no idea. So we tried to talk to her. And as a psych nurse, you know, I'm trying to get her to like contract for safety and stuff like that. And she wouldn't do it. And she kept saying, you know, I'm I'm going to like stab a knife through my chest. And then I saw the marks on her arms where she will bite her skin. And then so she'll open it and then she'll dig in with her fingers and then she'll dig it out. Um, I found a pair of scissors in her drawer and it was like everything just like came crashing down and I got really, really scared. So initially we took her to my job because I was like, oh, well, if she has to be institutionalized, I can totally check on her and it'll be fine, you know? And they said it was a conflict of interest, which I guess is fair. So (laughs) I know. So the next day we took her to a different place and they admitted her. And that was probably the hardest thing that we've ever done. And being at home without her, it was like she was dead not having her, you know, because we're a family of five. And, you know, she would call and she would be crying at night. And she was paranoid, too, because she had a lot of racing thoughts. And she would say, you know, people are talking about me. You know, I know what they're thinking. And she couldn't stop. And she had, like, rapid speech. It was very hard to hear her like that and not be able to be there for her. And then she got assessed by the doctor because when we admitted her, I was like, I think she needs to be on an antipsychotic 
because I thought that it was maybe a little bit more than just like depression or anxiety. He called and he was like, yeah, I just saw your daughter. And so I was like, well, what'd you think? And he's like, she's different. And it felt so good to be validated (laughs) by somebody. And he suggested an antipsychotic, which made me really happy. And then they started her on it and her brain started slowing down and she got calmer. You know, she got discharged. She did outpatient therapy where they're supposed to learn coping skills. But we know coping skills, that's a lifelong thing. And so often, especially at work, too, I'll hear kids say yoga, meditation. I'm like, you don't even know what that is. <laughs> you know, They're like deep breathing. And I'm yeah, like, right. what, what kind of deep breathing? So we're trying to focus on like personalized things for her. And then just over this last week, she's just declined again. And it's so hard to watch. Like, she's been self-harming almost all week. And part of it is she's supposed to come and talk to us first. I had a patient at work tell me that if you take a red pen and mark up your arms, you have the the pressure from the pen and the red is like blood and that that's relieving. So Brie does that. So now she has all these marks on her arms. But if her skin will just heal, I figure that's a good thing. She has a lot of false beliefs, too. Like she thinks that we're out to get her, that we don't love her. Her latest one was that she was going to run away and join a foster family. You know, she tells us that that she hates us and that nobody really cares and that we don't really spend time with her. And she tends to backslide to three years ago and she'll get stuck in that narrative of how things used to be. And she has a really hard time separating like the past and right now. So that's a big thing that we're working on. Yeah, that's a lot. Sorry, I just like kept no, going, but no, I was just okay. trying to to catch up. We've been watching her very carefully. I guess it's kind of selfish. You know, I got like a $6,000 bill from the institution she just came from. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my God, if she has to go back again, like I am never going to get out of debt. And I don't mm. even know if they're going to take her because I haven't even made any payments yet. Uh, right. And it's stressful. And then with the online schooling, it's a joke. Because when she gets upset, that's like an hour and a half. And then she sleeps for two hours afterwards because she's emotionally exhausted. And it's just this whole thing. I feel like this year should be a gap year. Yeah. If this is the first episode you've listened to, I get this message from Stephanie in early November. And I'm like, man, we should have her on. I think this topic is probably relevant to many people in our community because, unfortunately, we've harmed our children. We've passed down that cyclical problems that we grew up with and the traumas from our household and even me all my kids are are from after my clean date I still gave them a lot of my father's parenting for the first 10 years and I look back at it now and I'm like god I was fucking awful and clean like I don't even have an excuse I was just a piece of shit really it's not an excuse I didn't know better right and now that I do know better I do better but I I can still imagine in 10 years I'm gonna look back and be like oh my god 10 years ago I was still (laughs) fucking up when I thought I was doing well like we just don't know and we pass down what we were naturally given and so So many people either have the time in recovery where they're screwing their kids up or the time while they're still using screwing their kids up like we're screwing our kids up partially and and then they got the epigenetics to go along with it so I get, I'm like, yeah, this is really relevant. When you mentioned like the milestones with your kids, I was completely clean with all my kids. I couldn't tell you any of their milestones. I don't, they were normal kids. I don't know. <laughs> that, make, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I, I don't remember. Yeah. I, I don't didn't remember keep track. I know. 
My kids are like, what time was I born? I'm like, I don't give a yeah, fuck. I, I barely know, know the day. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's four of you. I have to remember right. birthdays. That's hard enough. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm like, yeah, it'll be super relevant. It'll help people. And then even further, it gives you an opportunity to come on and talk about it. Right. And, and I know that's always a healing process. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this will be so great. And then two weeks later, my daughter's taken 80 ibuprofen and, and 10 Tylenol extra strength and, and trying to harm herself. And I'm like, what the fuck this is stuff that happens to other people not me and you know you mentioned the disappointment my daughter expresses a lot of feeling like a disappointment like nothing she does is good enough for anyone and it's hard and and this is what my buddy always used to say about the disease of addiction i'd be like oh my god it's so fucking stupid it doesn't make any sense and he's like the disease of addiction doesn't make any sense and that's what i've learned about mental health too so like trying to understand a child going through a mental health experience from a rational standpoint is useless, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's not going to. It doesn't matter that I show her that I love her and that I try to spend time with her and that I say nice things when she does good things and all that. Like, none of that matters. She feels how she feels, and that's her interpretation of the world right now. And what do you do with that? We had to have my daughter. And honestly, we didn't have to. I would have chosen against having her committed. I look in hindsight and say it's probably a good thing. Kept her safe for a week. Kept her able to be stable and monitored while her medicine continued to take effect. But at the time, I was against it. I was like, we don't fucking need that. (laughs) But because we went to the emergency room, we didn't get an option. They told me if I said no, they were going to do it anyway with a whole lot more complications. Involuntary. Yeah. Yep. Mm. That was its own issue. And, and, you know, I've complained about the emergency room staff because I don't like the way they helped people in crisis. But I do think ultimately that was probably the right thing. But it was still hard, especially, I mean, the place was goddamn two hours away. So it might have been for the best that we couldn't visit because of COVID. But not visiting because of COVID felt shitty. It was like, man, She's never been away from us like this. She's never been away from her sister at all. She's a twin. Mm. She's never been away from her sister for more than, you know, five minutes, much less seven fucking days. And now we can only call. We can't even visit. And then we went to pick her up and I was like, thank God we couldn't visit. (laughs) That's a long ass drive. (laughs) It's like four hours round trip. (laughs) But yeah, the insurance costs, like there's so many added stressors to this for the parent. So much you're trying not to put on the kid, even though you're stressed about it. It's like, well, what do we do with this? Where do we start? How do we help? This has probably been my biggest realization of powerlessness yet in my life. Yeah, I'm powerless over drugs. Yeah, I'm powerless over girls cheating on me. Yeah, I'm powerless over all these other things that I've run into. But powerless over if my child is going to be alive tomorrow. Obviously, we're all powerless over that. There's car accidents. There's falling down the steps wrong. But facing that, because that's something I think we often ignore, facing that today, knowing that I don't know what's coming when I wake up tomorrow, next week, three years from now, that's as powerless as I've ever fucking been. And especially when they self-harm and you start looking around, everything becomes a weapon. Like, And that was something when I looked through her bed, she had ripped off the top of the hangers so that there was like Mm. that curved part with the point. And I'm just like, man, and yeah, everything's a weapon. So then you're like, are you supposed to put her in a bubble? Am I supposed to box up the whole house? And it's hard. And even too, like since you said that you have other kids, like the way that it affects the other kids in the house is is huge because they're like man what's what's wrong with my sister and i have a five-year-old and her name is evie 
and she is so worried that Brianna is going to hurt herself again and have to go back to the hospital. So she's developed, she's a five-year-old running around with anxiety now. Mm. And her anxiety is that she tries really hard to get everybody to have fun and to, to stay focused and to be happy and say, everything's fine. And she just jumps around because she's petrified of what could happen to her sister. And that's really hard to see too. Yeah, I know for me, I like I have a 11 year old boy, six year old boy. And I was like, they're not going to give a fuck that she's not here. They don't talk to her when she is. <laughs> and then they both cried while she was away. And I'm like, huh, who who knew? Like, we don't I guess we take for granted looking from the outside like, oh, you don't really talk to each other. You don't really hang out. You're different ages, but you still just get used to people being around. And there's like a connection and a, a safety and a comfort that they're just in the house with you. They don't have to be talking to you or in the room. Yeah, it was like a traumatic experience when we had to pack up her stuff. And I'm sure you can relate like in taking her out of the house, you know, and she tried to put on like a brave face and act like she was excited and everything was going to be fun. I almost felt like she was kind of hypomanic at that time. And, you know, and then the kids, the other two kids are crying and we're crying and I feel like I'm going to vomit. And it's just it was this whole thing. I give you so much credit because I don't think I could have done it. She was at the emergency room already. I took her there. But her leaving from there and them facilitating that process was way better for my life. Like, I don't know if I could have in my house made that call and taken that drive and forced it to happen like that. That seems really, really tough. I agree. And I think, too, like if you have things from your past that kind of relate to it, like it brought up a lot of the feelings when when I had overdosed and, and how I had felt like in my home. Mm -hmm. And again, that powerlessness and realizing that you can't keep your kids safe. And like for the, the selfish part of me, which of course is always there, I'm like, well, what about me? You know, mm -hmm. what about how this is affecting me as a mom? You know, like I'm trying my best. Like, why can't she just be happy? Why can't she just be healthy? You know, I provide for her. I love her. I hug her now. I'm present. Like, why right. can't that be enough? And Ooh, back to why am I not enough? Yeah. And it, it caught my therapist brings it up all the time. She's like, and what does that remind you of? <laughs> and it's always the same thing of those those feelings of inadequacy. And it's interesting to see how much they show up like once you become aware of it. Yeah, we have that trauma response. It takes us right back to our childhood and takes other people back to their life. And wow. And I think, too, it really shows the like in the rooms, we we called it uh, our isms and how like you have these certain um, person like uh, traits and behaviors that you display before you ever pick up or use mm -hmm. and watching it in my daughter. It's shocking. And I just keep thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, if she starts drinking or using, like, I don't know what's going to happen because she self-harms for that quick fix. And I'm like, man, when she finds out that there's mm. another quick fix out there, I don't know what we're going to do. And, of course, because I'm going to think, you know, 18 years in the future because that's what I do instead of just being right here. But it, it's scary to see all of those those isms because we learn too until you learn to love yourself and care about yourself. Like you were saying, it doesn't matter how much – uh, positive feedback we give her right it just it's like it's almost like a shield it just like bounces off of her except for the negative feedback which of course goes right in through all of the cracks and they absorb all of that so there's a cognitive behavioral drawing that they like to use it looks like pac-man basically and that's your core belief system and so if your core belief is you don't like yourself you know that's in the center of the pac-man and basically anything filters through that right so Anything that's negative and, and reinforces that worldview 
comes in through the Pac-Man's open mouth and everything else is around the other sides of the Pac-Man where it just bounces off. You can't hear good things. And anybody that's ever dealt with that feeling knows it. As soon as somebody compliments you, you shrug it off, you make a joke about it, you belittle it, you can't take compliments, those kind of things. It's just your worldview. There's no way. I have a really hard time with compliments still. Like I'll ask, especially my husband. So his name is Bruce because I don't want to say my husband anymore. Um, (laughs) Hi, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. I'll be like, you know, hey, do I look okay? And he's like, yeah, you look great. And I'm like, tell me what looks great. I'm like, I need like a from top to bottom. I need a play by play of what looks great because yeah, I still get insecure, you know, and I still crave that validation from others, even though logically I know that it's not going to make me feel better, but I still find myself looking for it. Damn, maybe I need to get better. My wife's always asking about her outfits, and I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell them I say I need specific examples. You're not naked. It's perfect. <laughs> it's great. We can go out. <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For us as parents, like we had an issue with my seven, well, she was 15 at the time. We were having a family discussion argument about some things and my 15 year old kind of blurted out, you know, well, I just think I should just kill myself. And she was pretty serious. She was pretty upset and crying. And, you know, we were like, wow, where did that come from? You know, we weren't expecting to hear that at all. And so we kind of let everything calm down and we followed up and we ended up getting her into therapy. One of the big things for me that I had to swallow through that whole process is even as smart as I think I am with all the answers that I think that I have, I still don't have the answers to everything all the time for my kids. Hmm. And when we put her into therapy, you know, we met with her therapist and I was kind of, I don't want to say anti-therapy, but I was like, ah, this is for people that have like diagnosed mental illnesses. And, you know, just I had a jaded perspective on most of that. And the therapist said the most simple thing that helped me understand that process. She said, sometimes we just need other people to help us figure out answers to problems. And I was like, huh, from a recovery perspective, like that made a lot of sense. And, you know, my daughter was able to go in there and meet with this woman who was able to give her some coping skills. I guess what I was giving her, what I learned through recovery, just didn't relate to a 16, 17 year old girl in today's society. What I was giving her wasn't exactly what she needed and realizing that, like, that's okay that we seek information outside of ourselves in our parenting. 
And so to go along with that, my friend Jack and I got clean around the same time originally. We were sponsee brothers, lived around a corner, worked together. We even had the same sponsor for a little while. And we ran into the same problem in both of our lives that our fathers, after we had gotten clean and, and gotten into recovery and worked some steps, we would be talking with our fathers with information. And our fathers both said to us, I've been telling you that for years, but you couldn't listen to me. (laughs) And so it's just the fact that that individual, that father figure, that parent, that close individual, it was just too close to hear it. That's not who we were getting our information from. But once the information came, it was good information, right? Like what you were probably telling her was great. She just couldn't hear it from you. She needed to hear it from a different place. And I think that's an experience a lot of us have. Like it's, It's not like the judges, the parents, the anybody, generally they had good advice. I just couldn't take it. That's happened before when uh, Bree's done the the telemed and the therapist would say something similar to what I've said. And I wanted to take the computer screen so bad and put it on me and be like, I said that. I've been saying that. And yeah, that's just the part of wanting to validate myself. Well, and your Pac-Man example is what reminded me of that. It's like certain information coming in a certain way, just they miss it. it. It doesn't come in. But the same thing from someone else or a peer or a family member could saying the same message, which, and this is anecdotal, but I think, you know, or I believe my parents giving me praise and love and all that stuff, even when I was going through my addiction, like, I think that all mattered. I didn't hear it. I didn't feel it at the time. But later on in my life, I could look back and realize, like, I am someone who people loved and cared about and appreciated. And I didn't feel that when I was a teenager, but I feel it now, you know, and I can recognize being lucky to have that because there's a lot of people that don't even get that, you know, in their life. They don't have right. parents that tell them they love them or that they're there for them, even if the kids blow us off and ignore us. I don't know that everybody always does, but I think one of the incredible parts of therapy is the ability to go back and rewrite your whole life with a new understanding. So you can come into therapy at like 60 years old and feel like you have all these regrets and you missed all these opportunities. And yet when you change that core central belief it not only changes your life moving forward but it changes the way you view your past like you said like you can go back and see oh shit they they did say nice things about me they did love me my childhood was good right like we can alter the perception of our whole life and go from somebody who lives with regrets and miserable experiences and because of our new understanding of how we believe the world works whatever that may be for any individual we can go back and say no, that happened for a reason because I needed that experience to do this or this is what pushed me here and and it all makes sense. And it's I just think that's incredible. Like we can change our whole life past tense. That's been a really big part for me with staying sober was being able to look at the past, you know, with a different perspective. And although I'm not I get funny. And it's the same thing about how things have to be phrased a certain way to penetrate us. But like, I don't like it when people say things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. But then um, I think it was the second Matrix movie when Morpheus, when he's like, you know, things happen the way they happen because it couldn't have happened any other way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) And it's basically the (laughs) same thing. But that, that was very freeing for me because I stopped being so fixated on the past and kept thinking that if this would have been different, I could have been a better person because that's so like debilitating to think like that instead to just say, this is how it happened because everything that led up to that point is like how it culminated and that it's just, it's the way that it was and that that's okay. 
So that was a big one. I live in the past tense with that. I'm like, that happened exactly how it was supposed to happen. And people are like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, because that's how it happened. Yeah. yeah and <laughs> if it was supposed to be different, it would have been. It would have been. It's tricky when you're in the moment, though, when you're in the tough situation to accept that. It's easy to say and it's easy to appreciate later down the line once you've kind of, you know, acknowledged the feelings and processed them. But yeah, when you're in the moment and somebody says that, you're like, shut the fuck up. And it's just little stuff like instead of saying, uh, like I read this on Facebook all the time where it says like, instead of saying, why is this happening to me? What can I learn from this? Or how can I like, what am I able to manipulate, you know, of course, in a healthy manner that will benefit me from this instead of saying, oh, God, this is so horrible. And because I know for me, like I'm I love to be a victim. That's a big part of that's definitely one of my my isms. Right. And so like with everything that happened with Brie, like that was such a great I was like, oh, this is so terrible that this is happening to me. <laughs> you know, the alcoholic part of my brain was like, and this is a totally valid reason to relapse too. Like right. that also went through my head. I was like, because if this isn't, then what would be? I didn't though, but it went thank through God. my head a lot. Yeah, thank yeah. God. What do they say? You could have 99 problems and using them to make 100. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not going to fix the 99. Things with my kids, that was the only issue that ever really triggered me to want to use like really badly was my daughter was sexually abused by her grandfather, which is part of probably her problems later in life. But when that happened, I really wanted to use, not because I thought it would fix anything. I just didn't want to feel the way that I felt right then. And I thought, I don't give a fuck what all the consequences are. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to deal with this. And I know that I could go get high and I wouldn't have to feel this. And hmm. whatever problems come along, I didn't really care. Right. <laughs> the fuck it button is pretty, it's <laughs> yeah. brutal when it comes yeah. into your head. And it's interesting, like with mental health, because it, like it is, it's such a mirror. And I'll see that in my daughter, like when she, when she does wrong and she could have done better, like you would think that the first thing you would do is accept responsibility for your behavior. Right. But instead, man, she just keeps digging mm. and she'll go and go and go. And then she got in trouble like two days before Christmas. And she's like, fine, just don't even give me any of my Christmas presents for like, what? <laughs> and, like you just go so far with things because you can't regulate your emotions. Yeah, from a hundred feeling happy to negative a hundred, I'm completely shut off from the world and want nothing from it. And we went through that with my son when he was a lot younger. So from the age of probably about seven to maybe 10 or 11, he went through really extreme emotional stuff to being incredibly violent and angry all the time. I mean, he would tell us he was going to murder us in our sleep and he was going to get a knife and cut our throats to the point where we ended up seeking counseling for that because said to Jen, you know, these are how those kids that shoot up schools like that's how that starts. You know, you hear their parents talk about that. And, you know, I was like, we got to get him into therapy or counseling or whatever. And and we did. And he's, you know, thank God we don't deal with that anymore. But it was scary. And it was like, say, just the least little problem. He would flip out and go right to 100 and want to kill you in your sleep because you wouldn't change the TV channel or something bizarre. And even to this day, like, we have no idea where he got that from or where that came from. We aren't violent in our house. You know, we don't have guns or, you know, we don't watch, like, a lot of violent things. <laughs> like, And we just couldn't figure out, like, where did that come from and i don't know exactly how it worked out after a couple of years we went to therapy a lot and i think he just hated therapy so he corrected his behavior because see but it worked go. yeah it worked though yeah i think sometimes kids and even us 
have a hard time separating those feelings of like guilt, shame and remorse and said, so we'll just jump and go, OK, well, I just want to die now <laughs> instead yeah. of like dealing with those feelings. Like I see that a lot with my daughter, like when she feels guilty, she's like, I feel like harming myself right now. And we're like, whoa, that's a that's a huge leap. And the big thing is like getting them to talk about those feelings. What you said reminded me how you felt like that's one of those questions or things that people do before. When Brie was like three, she killed our rabbit. And it was an accident. It was next to her in the bed. And she, I guess, put him under the covers and was sitting on it. And she broke its neck. And I remember the day that that happened. And I was like, I'm going to be doing an interview for this in a few years, like for why she shot up the school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. I just felt selfish when you were talking. I was like, you know. This is traumatic that my daughter wants to harm herself and it's sad and, and it makes me feel powerless. But if she was talking about harming me, oh, fuck, no, you got to get out. Like, <laughs> I love my life today. Yep. Like, that's not going to happen. I have a stepdaughter who has a mental and physical disability. She's actually in a institutional living facility, and that was one of the major warning signs. So they told us when she was young, we kind of knew that at some point she would probably need to go institutional for her living, that she would never be able to live on her own or take care of herself. But we had young kids at the time. She was 15 or 16. Our other two daughters were like four and I think two. And she had some pet rats and she ended up killing both of them. One because it bit her hand, so she just strangled it. And then the other one, she just killed it. I don't, we're not sure why. <laughs> so we're like, okay, this is time to seek professional yeah. help now and prompted sort of the next couple of steps to getting here. Now she's in a facility up in Massachusetts. It's wonderful. You know, she loves it up there. But I remember, you know, you talked about like packing up her stuff and taking it up there and making the trip up there mm. and going through all that. It was It was pretty tough at the time. It's still tough on my wife. We still make visits up there probably three or four times a year. And this year has been really terrible because we haven't been able to go. We usually go up around Christmas. Then her birthday's in February. So we usually go in February. We go up there in the summer and COVID's really kind of messed up visits with her. So she's, I think she's 29 now. She'll be 30 this year. And it's still difficult you know, living with her in a facility far away all the time where she can't just come home to be with us during Christmas. And I hate to say it gets more normal, but it's definitely easier now that it's been, I think she went up there when she was 16. So it's been 14 years she's been in a facility and you kind of, I guess you learn to live with it, but it's always still tough. You know, it's always still a struggle, especially for my wife. She really has a hard time with that. Yeah, I get it. You don't want to feel like you let like you failed or like you you let your kid down as worse and especially like as a mom because we carry our kids and we give them life and and all this stuff so it's like we have this uh, sense of proprietorship over them almost my wife is is pretty humble to the fact that my daughter's needs are way more than most normal people could handle and she's in a amazing place that gives her a life that's way more opportunities and benefits because they understand her mental struggles and her limitations, physical and mental limitations. And they have a whole facility that's set up specifically for people with that same disability. So her quality of life there is way better than we were able to offer her here. And that helps, you know, for a lot. Sure. 
And that's a big fear like of ours is, is Brianna's quality of life because with what she has going on with her mental health, with how her thought process is a little bit different, her being institutionalized again is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And so it's all about like trying to give her the best quality of life until that happens again. You know, me and Bruce were talking, we're like, oh my God, she's probably never going to leave the house. <laughs> like, or what if she, you know, what if she never, never meets somebody or, or, or is never happy or can't pursue what she wants to do? And again, that's going too far in the future, but it's a huge fear, you know, that we have because she needs so much help right now. And it's a lot, you know. So my daughters, uh, both of them, ended up in therapy because in August their mother OD'd and passed away. And we were like, man, it's time to start therapy again, like right now. And so at least thankfully, like they were already in that pattern of going there weekly. Even after she came home from the facility, we found some more self-harm evidence and had to bring that up. And so now she's in seeing her therapist twice a week for the moment. It seems to have passed for the moment, but like you said, yours just came back in the last week. And I'm like... That's how it feels dealing with this is like, when is it going to come back? When is it going to raise its ugly head again? It doesn't really feel like, oh, thank God we dealt with that one. Man, we can move on. It's like addiction. It's like, what the fuck do you even do? Like, I've already got her in therapy every week. She still did this while she was in therapy every week. She's contracted not to hurt herself before she did it. And that didn't help a goddamn thing. She's contracted to wait 15 minutes before she self-harms and she doesn't. She's contracted to use ice cubes, like the ice cube trick, right? But she won't. And it's like, what can we do that's anymore? What do we do? Just take them to a facility and be like, here, they're your problem. Keep them till they're fixed. Like, And there are parents that do that. There are, but those facilities that are operating under government funding, are they're not where you want to be. Is she honest with her therapist? She's getting more honest. I think more of her problem isn't her lack of ability to be honest. It's her lack of being in touch with her honesty. I, I guess I feel like we don't have many real good options in this. Like we're, we're kind of stuck. You can stick them in somewhere that's going to fund it because you can't afford to stick them in somewhere long term if not, which is ridiculous that we even need to worry about financing, helping our right. children. We talk all this bullshit in the world about how the kids are the most important thing, which I'm not completely sure about anyway, but we talk it. We say we believe it, but we don't finance shit like this. Yeah, there's no money or education about mental health in right. school and high school or, you know. Your guidance counselors just to help you get into college, you know, they don't right. really deal with emotional or physical traumas going on in your life. Yeah. So you, you can't fund it yourself. You can put them into a facility long term that is really putting them around people who they might learn even worse practices from. And, and I'm not saying they're bad people, but other people's kids who come from somewhere even worse and a harder place and more trauma. Like it's kind of like going to prison. You come out a better criminal if you don't do anything. If you just talk to other criminals, like you come out with better ideas about how to be a more functional criminal. Same thing. Or you start to get labeled, you know, as being institutionalized or you're the person that went into that place. Uh, Or you are institutionalized, like all these things. So, or we can keep them at home where, okay, they're in regular therapy, but even as a therapist, I, I say therapy with, teenagers is fucking hard kids in general and even when you do get some headway a lot of childhood family trauma stuff 
really can't be dealt with while you're still living in the childhood family home. It's just not possible. I just feel like we don't have any many options of good things to do. Well, can I ask a question in a little different way for both of you guys? Yeah. It's a little off that subject, but as an outside observer. So when you had to put your children in these facilities, do they give you like warning signs or do they educate you at all? Or do they expect you to educate yourself when they send your child home with you? (laughs) She did. Part of her discharge plan was where she filled out this worksheet for what her triggers were. And I feel like that was the case where she got influenced by some kids because one of her triggers was loud noises. And I was like, that's not fucking true, Brittany. I was like, you don't <laughs> right. even have a problem with loud noises. Right. But right. so that sounds good. And that's supposed, <laughs> yeah. And so that's supposed to, to help them. But on my end, like, because I am a nurse, like, I kind of went in and like, I told them sort of what I wanted to happen. You know, and I was, you know, and I'm like, you know, treat them like, you know, she's your own kid. And and I had like a whole plan in my head, but it's just a piece of paper, honestly. I just meant, do they sort of say, all right, you know, we're going to send you home. Here's kind of a little bit of a game plan, but these are warning signs where you need to do something else. And this is what the something else is. (laughs) No. And and that's one of those things. And kind of like Stephanie's talking about, I have a knowledge of mental health and and treatment and crisis and this kind of stuff. So like, I am sad for the parent that goes in to the emergency room or to one of these facilities and doesn't know better, which I think is most people who aren't in this kind of field, because a lot of what I saw was ugly. And I had to stand up and say, this is no, you're not going to talk to my daughter that way. There's definitely some some bad shit that happens, in, especially in institutions, too, the way that staff will be. I feel like if they're not trained properly, they staff uh, get sucked into uh, power plays mm. a lot, with, especially with children, which doesn't make any sense. But so then they're just lording all this stuff over the kids and they're not actually helping them. And the kids are just scared for most of the time. And because I work in that environment, that was one of the biggest reasons I didn't want to have to put her in it, because mm. I know how they can be. And I know how other kids can be like when they get violent with each other. And that, you know, even though they're supposed to have group X amount of times a day, that doesn't really happen. Right. And and it was it was hard. I don't have any real beefs with the place my daughter went. They kept her safe. They kept her stabilized. She came home. That's great. I, I questioned a lot of times, like I didn't feel like they did a whole lot there, except we're just there. They ate good. Okay. That's nice. <laughs> they slept. Made sure she didn't kill herself. Yeah. Right. I'm like, man, there's no there's no one-on-one therapy here whatsoever. Like, it's only groups. I don't know how much you're getting out of that. When the, the psychiatrist called me to talk about medicine, he was open to my input, which that was nice because a lot of doctors aren't. They, they're smarter than you and don't want to hear it. But he also kind of rushed me off the phone after like three minutes because he had a billion other things to do, right? He's seeing everybody. They called the first night and asked if I was okay with them giving her certain medicines And I denied one, which she never got, thankfully. But there was another one they said they would only give her in an anxiety attack kind of thing, like if she really needed it. I was like, that's the only way I want you to give her that. First night, she doesn't get it. Second night, they made her take it. Third, fourth, and fifth nights, they offered it to her. And I'm like, that doesn't seem consistent at all, (laughs) right? right? None of it really looks like what I said. Um, (laughs) And then for her to come home, like we had a Zoom family therapy session that lasted about 10 minutes. They never asked us anything about the family home. They never asked us if we had 
proofed it for safety. Like I've even thought about that. I'm like, should I put away the steak knives? Like, is that useful? Like we you said, yep. everything's a fucking weapon. So it's kind of useless to even bother. Right. But they didn't even ask what kind of parents we were. Like they had no clue of what environment they were sending her back to whatsoever. And they were like, well, based on the fact that she's learned some coping skills here, we think she's ready to come home. Jackie, why don't you tell them what coping skills you've learned? And she's like, yeah, I can color. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I can count. Right. I'm like, it's not that I blame the place. I, there's only so much you can do in a week with all these people. I just, that doesn't seem like a very effective treatment. And, I, and that's the point. They're not for treatment. Their crisis stabilization. That's it. Yeah, and so that's where I was sort of confused. Like, I think if I go to a doctor for a broken arm or cancer, they're going to say, okay, first we do this, then we do this, then we do this, and then you're back to normal, healthy, yeah. or you're, you're right. fixed as best as we can fix you. And it doesn't sound like that was either your experience with the no. mental health. And if not, I mean, both of you working in that field, like where would you go to find that? Or is it just up to you to sort of start Googling a bunch of shit and reading and trying to figure it out on your own? Where Brie was, they had a outpatient program that she went to for a couple of weeks where they had therapy and stuff during the day. But it kind of reminds me of like the unit I work on, it's a detox unit, right? So like all we're doing is we're stabilizing them. We're getting, making sure that their their bodies are clear and their brains are clear enough so that hopefully they will make better decisions leaving. And a lot of times they'll be like, nobody talks to us about recovery here. And it's like, well, you're not even in the state of mind to be able to hear about it. And I feel like with this, it's kind of the same thing and that that's the part where it's up to us to like make sure that they go to therapy regularly and stuff like that but it sucks that that's the only thing i can think of well and, and right no but <laughs> so when we had jessica on from addiction policy forum i think this is part of the problem she was talking about if we start recognizing mental health i know we diagnose it but we really don't have it included in our doctor view in our medical view of the world right you don't go see your primary care doctor normally for mental health problems mental health, right you're over here in the mental health arena somewhere else and because it's separate, that's why it looks different, right? If you went in with a broken arm and the doctor kept you for seven days so that you didn't die and then sent you home with the same broken arm, <laughs> right? we'd be like, well, what the fuck? You didn't fix anything. Right? Suing them. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's why we're not getting the treatment right. And there are two different models. The doctor's model is to fix the situation and the mental health drug addiction substance use treatment model is like, follow up with your primary care provider. Yeah, something mm -hmm. else. And so there are facilities where you can go for long-term treatment. I mean, Rockford has that. Shepherd Pratt has that down in Baltimore. They're just the local ones that I know of. My stepdaughter with her disability, she she had on and off a lot of behavioral issues that came with her disability. And so, you know, she had ended up there at one point. I think she was inpatient there for like a week or two. I remember we were at a a lot of different places right. <laughs> that was pretty traumatic going through a couple of years with her but i remember that being i mean at least from her experience like that was a pretty scary place for her because there was a lot of so she wasn't severely mentally ill she had some behavioral problems right. and she was in there with like severely mental ill people and so she was totally freaked out by that experience it's like a snake pit effect. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, she's like, why am I here? Like, this isn't, I'm not a, literally, like, I hate to use the word crazy person, but I'm not a 
crazy person, you know, and you got me locked in this crazy facility. It was. Yeah. I mean, that those facilities are generally for people who are experiencing the worst of the worst right. crisis. And it's like, that's where you go. There's nowhere else to go, mm-hmm. you know, unless you can do it on an outpatient basis, like Stephanie was saying, which is hopefully the way we can do it. We want to include the family in the treatment. We want to include the family environment and the safe, comfortable home in the treatment because that all helps. But unfortunately, sometimes the family is the worst thing for the person. I only dealt with a few kids in my internship doing therapy, thank God, because I I am not a child therapist whatsoever. I don't have any desire to be. But dealing with the parents, it was like, well, no fucking wonder. (laughs) Like, I get it. We say Uh, that all the time at work. Yeah. (laughs) No questions asked here as to why. I wonder if the rest of the parents are like us, though. Like, I feel like I'm a great parent. (laughs) I think parents look at kids as property, their own. They should listen. They should do exactly what they're told, like a computer. Your fucking phone don't even open up the right app when you want it to all the time. Like, can you expect your kid to? Like. I think because it requires a level of patience and attention that and I know for me that like that I just don't really afford my kids like instead of nurturing, you know, their differences and what makes them unique. Yeah, it's mostly just sit or I'm like, go read a book or go do something, you know, and they'll be like, do you want to play a game with me? And I'm like, no. Right. (laughs) Or like my five year old will be like, let's role play. And I'm like, that is way too much effort. And I just don't want to do it. I'm feeling fucking super dad right now. I yeah. played a board game with my kids last night. I'm like, yep, I do that stuff. Yeah. Cross it off the list. I haven't done it in months, but yeah, I do that. Did it last night. Yeah, I, I would say the same reason children are traumatized and it's a messed up situation is the same reason the divorce rate's so high. Things take work and yeah. work sounds fucking awful to well, most Well, and us. it's hard and like, as you mentioned with children, like they're all different. You know, my kids, I have three, well, four they're all completely different individuals. Like their needs are different, their wants are different, their amount of attention and demand, and and that is, they're just completely different people. My middle child, my 16-year-old, she's the most independent kid ever. She does most everything for herself. She doesn't really ask us to do a lot other than finance her endeavors, (laughs) you know? Like, she just needs money. But, you know, when it was time for her to do driver's ed, she went out and found her own driver's ed classes and signed up and then just asked us for the money and she keeps track of her schedule whereas my older daughters she's getting better now she's 18 and she's learning to take some responsibility but she was not that way and then my son's very emotional like completely different from his sisters and that he's incredibly emotional they're just way different and it's like at what point do you start to teach your kids to like take responsibility for their behaviors and for their actions and to sit down and just tell them like you're being really fucking unreasonable right now (laughs) and let's discuss why and I think that that would help a lot like especially with with addiction and mental health like if we have these kids and they're having these issues and they go to these places like that's almost a way of like bringing the bottom up and you're like way in front of it but we just don't have have enough resources Mm. That's a big one. I feel like if we could get, if I won the lottery, I would definitely do something about that. Because, yeah, that's, that's You hear a that, lot. God? Yeah. Yeah. I, if you don't put it out there, you won't get it. Do, do you play the lottery? Because I always, always. want to win and I don't even get a ticket. Yeah, I I'm like, I should either. win. <laughs> Why don't I ever win the lottery? God damn it. No, no, you know, buy a ticket. That would help. <laughs> we are getting a little low on time. So let's just check into some of these things that the experts say. I'm talking about some signs that your child could be experiencing a mental health crisis. 
rapid mood swings, extreme energy or lack of energy, sleeping all the time, unable to sleep, severe agitation, pacing, talking very rapidly or nonstop, not six-year-olds because they do that anyway, confused thinking, irrational thoughts, thinking everyone's out to get them, seeming to lose touch with reality. If they're experiencing hallucinations or delusions, making threats to others or themselves, isolating themselves from friends and family, not coming out of their room, not eating or eating all the time, rapid weight <laughs> loss or gain. Fair. Right. Is your child alive? They, they're in a <laughs> mental health crisis. Uh, suicidal thoughts and statements such as I want to die or even possible vague statements such as I don't want to be here anymore. And every last one of those is pretty much a natural childhood slash teenage life daily thing. Yeah. Like I... Right. I so how do you tell when it's too bad, to right? To tell they, the difference, yep. That information doesn't exist. It's, it's like a gut feeling. It's like a... Or it gets to the point where they actually hurt themselves. And then you're like, oh, okay, you you really meant that. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's that's when we realize it, right? Nothing my daughter did stood out as out of the norm. And we already had her in therapy. She did talk about the idea of not wanting to be here or wanting to hurt herself. And I'm like, well, she's talking about it. She's talked about it with a therapist. They've contracted. I feel like we're in a pretty safe place until five minutes after dinner, I'm being told she took all these pills. And I'm like, what the, how, how do I not see this? You had mentioned she self-harmed too, right? She had been cutting or something. Well, yeah, we didn't find that out. We didn't catch on. Her sister actually told us that the night she said she was, she had been feeling like she wanted to harm herself. Her sister Caught me in another room and was like, look, she's been self-harming and cutting and telling me not to tell you. And she came out with it. But like, even that, okay, well, you've done that. Now we got to do something. And so I took it serious. I acted immediately. I'm like, you know what? If this is where you're at, we need an antidepressant like yesterday. And so we made a doctor's appointment. Like the next day, we talked to her therapist, made sure she was on board with us doing that. Because, you know, I don't want to just sit here and be my daughter's therapist. That's not Mm -hmm. smart for me. And everything went smoothly and we got her on it. And then this was like 10 days onto it that she tried to OD. And it's like, I don't see it coming. So, yeah, we can read this list of suggested things. But what fucking good is it, honestly? And I guess it's a lot like like recovery, too. You know, it's just we, we go day by day. Because I tell her because she gets a lot of anxiety still, like where she's waiting for the other shoe to drop because it's only been three years. You know, mm. so she has a, a lifetime. She still has more bad time than good time. Right. And she'll say, are you going to have a drink today? And I go, well, not today. Check with me again tomorrow. And so I feel like. With her, I try to touch base with her every morning and throughout the day. And like we talk a lot about first thought, first action. Like you can't control the first thought, but you can control the first action. So it's okay that that popped into your head that like you want to die or you want to hurt yourself. But what did we do about it? And then to like congratulate yourself for doing the right thing. Right. And hope that that starts to take effect after a while. It's either that or I'm saying, God damn it, Brianna, you know, (laughs) it's like one or the other. Couple more symptoms often talk about fears or worries. Frequent tantrums are intensely irritable. Much of the time complain about frequent stomach aches or headaches with no known medical cause. That's when a lot of times if we have undealt with mental problems, they expose themselves through physical pain and we can't explain it. A lot of times that happens in the mental health world. And we talked to Brie about that a lot. Like we've noticed that that's kind of a tell for her now is that when she sneaks something or does something that she shouldn't, she starts complaining of uh, either having a headache or a stomach ache because it's manifesting. Mm-hmm. And so we, we try to talk to her about that. We're like, when you do good, you feel good. 
And then I just hope that she doesn't randomly get headaches, but it's it's a good idea. And I don't know how, I never picked up on this before, but we've made fun of my daughter, jokingly and lovingly, of course, for being a grandma since she's been like six because she has, I've never met a child that has more like aches and pains and, oh, my leg hurts, my hip hurts, my back hurts. It's, It's something like every day. And I've always been fascinated. I'm like, I never felt pain when I was a kid. I didn't feel shit. It was just go, go, go. And Especially when we work out, she's like, you know, my, my left foot hurts, the top of my left foot hurt. And I'm yes. like, you're like an old woman. Yes. I'm like, get it together. Mm. Now, looking at that now, I'm like, oh, maybe that's. <laughs> yeah. And yes. we were mocking them. Yeah. I, and I think I the know. same thing with my, well, now he's 12, but a younger, he was the same way. But it, uh, my stomach hurts, my head hurts. I'm like, you're just trying to get out of something. <laughs> just knock it off. <laughs> exactly. I just thought my daughter was a complainer. I was like, God, you just complain about everything. Life hurts. <laughs> suck it up. Suck some dirt on it. That's always the suck it up. The terrible information. Push through. I got. That's what I did. <laughs> like, look how I turned out. <laughs> so, what do you do when when you see some of these signs we've talked about? Right, you got to get help. And, and how do you get help? That's the tricky part, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the severity of the situation, how urgent the need is. You know, there's always the emergency room, if no other place that you can go. Obviously, as a guy who believes in therapy, I would always recommend having a therapist. That's when you're healthy or not healthy or in a bad spot or in a good spot. I think have a therapist because that's great for your life. It's always good to have extra eyes and and ears helping you. What other critical steps? Like, how did you find the place to take her? How did did that come about? Because it was close to where I live. And I had worked in another mental health facility and I was like, I am not taking her there. Right. So I took her to the sister facility that was in town and it actually, it was really good for her. And I noticed they had, there was a lot of structure and she really thrived in that structure. When we slack off at home is when she starts, I don't know, she starts like drifting. It's weird. But did you only know about this place because you're in the field? Like would, would the random average person no you could google mental health facilities in dover and and go from there yeah i mean you you definitely want to you want to seek something right and and i would say i think from my standpoint and i pose this to you i would say it never hurts to seek too soon Right. Like we talked about these behaviors look like normal kid behaviors and it's hard to tell the difference between when they're having a mental health crisis. But I would say err on the safe side. Like, I like mean, no if you, harm can come from. Yeah. But I guess, too, you have to gauge because like if you like you were saying, if if we have kids who self harm and if we took them and institutionalized them every day, they self harm. Bree would never be home. Right. So that's right. a that's a tough one, too. Well, I'm thinking more of like, I mean, if your kid sleeps 12 hours a day, don't run them to an inpatient week long treatment facility. But you might want to call a therapist like you might want to talk to your kid. You might want to talk to your kid's teachers. You might want to talk to anybody else that interacts with your kid. Fuck it. Talk to their friends. Just ask. Hey, do they seem down? Like, I'm worried about them. I'm not trying to get you to disclose anything that's going to get them in trouble. I'm genuinely concerned. Do they feel like they're not very happy? Because I want to get them help, right? And and have that conversation with your kid. I mean, I think kids worry that they'll be in trouble for feeling that way. Or that they'll let us down. That's a yes. big one that Bree says, or she'll say, I don't want to make you unhappy. And I think that part of that ties into like her fear of, of like me relapsing. Is she doesn't want to pose anything that would threaten where we're at. And so then she keeps it to herself. But that doesn't work, obviously. No, I can totally get that. 
the fear of disappointing their parents. And when you don't have any, I don't want to say you don't have any self-respect, but when you haven't found the ability to have the self-love and, and find your own belief in yourself that makes you feel good, you're looking for others. And, and the parental one is the most powerful one to come, right? So if you're disappointing them, then you're really hopeless, I would imagine, from so that standpoint. Yeah, especially. Uh, look at my own problems. I'm like, oh, my kids are fucked. <laughs> uh, there is a couple of tests out there I found online. I might post a link to this one. It seemed relatively easy. I don't know how useful it is. It's a bunch of questions about whether your kid feels sad or unhappy, and then you answer never, sometimes, or often, and it gives you a score. And I guess that could help assess maybe if you're in a, a moment of trying to figure out, like, is this normal teenage behavior or is this mental health crisis? This could be another level of figuring that out. So that could be useful. And of course, always with the National Suicide Hotline, 800-273-8255, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Call it before you do anything crazy. And when I say crazy, I mean like end your life. Like that's, I don't know. take backs yet. Yeah, yeah. And and then you know what? It might be the right solution for people. I'm not going to sit here and argue about what's right for any single individual. But yeah, there's no take backs. You don't get the chance to decide afterwards that. You were just kidding. Right. Maybe that wasn't the right path. Maybe I should like let's let's explore every other path before we try that one. That's all I'm saying. Well, and I think breaking down some of this stigma around substance abuse and mental health would help a lot. Like, why does it have to be so traumatic that someone checks into a mental health facility for a yeah. week or two? Like, that doesn't it seems like in our society we look at people so uh, stigmatizing when it comes to that sort of thing like oh something's wrong with you and and really fucking life nowadays is hard like it's really yeah. difficult and, find us someone you know, who doesn't have mental health issues yeah. right everyone has some level of mental health issues some way shape or form and you know yeah. why don't we just not do a little better at accepting that and accepting that kids struggle with this stuff i mean we look at suicide rates are through the roof and Young kids are, are killing themselves. I think they said it's the second leading cause of death in kids 16 to 24. Yeah. It's like we're reactive versus uh, proactive. Right. And it's the same as, as, again, Jessica was talking about with addiction. It's like we don't step in and start to do something until you're at this traumatic phase of right. wanting to commit suicide or committing, trying to commit suicide. And maybe a little more preemptive steps <laughs> would would help. That's yeah. a big one, too, with you saying with like the stigmatizing, because sometimes Brianna will say, like, are you mad at me because I have so many problems? And like an activity we did with her was uh, pieces of me. And so we had her write down like different traits or thoughts that she has and explained how like they're all the same size and they all make up who she is and that there's no bigger part than another's to try to help her to understand that just because she has false beliefs or depression or anxiety or she hurts herself, that that's not what dominates. Like you don't have to be your diagnosis just like in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I'll say, you know, that I'm a recovered alcoholic if it helps to get somebody to talk, but that doesn't define who I am, but it certainly helped. Right. right. Or maybe my struggles in my life, like just because they're not the same as yours, like I still have struggles in life. I still have issues. I still have problems. You know, we all have these different problems in different areas. Yeah. And and I think it comes back a lot to the, the same work it takes to figure out what kind of parenting style your kid needs and what works best for them and what their needs are and what they react to and their love language and all that effort. That same effort 
it's the same effort you need to put into to questioning are there men is their mental health okay am i doing what i need to do by providing nutritious food and exercise and and not letting them be on a screen for 26 hours a fucking day and like am i putting in the work it's harder it is harder to do these things but at the same time it's our kids yeah if, there, if you can't motivate yourself to do it for that reason, then I guess, I don't know. And I'll admit, like, you know, when I'm talking to Bruce at night, you know, and it's just us. And sometimes I'm like, man, like, I really don't, I don't like what's going on. Or, or I just get so frustrated with my daughter. I'm like, and I don't like that version of her. Right. And that's hard to say and to admit that, you know, I almost feel like I want to tap out sometimes. Because it definitely, it gets very overwhelming. Yeah. And I think, too, that like with us being in recovery, that it enables us to like identify just a little bit more with our kids, too, you know, because I know I had the, you know, the feelings of of not being worth it. And I still struggle with that and, you know, and of hurting myself and things like that. So when it's just like when we share in recovery, like if it's somebody who's been through what you've been through, sometimes you're more prone to talk about it. Right. So, I mean, maybe it's like showing our kids that we are human, too. Yeah, admitting we're wrong, admitting we don't know. And and again, if you're really unsure about whether your kid is being a, a normal kid for their age or having a, a real crisis going on, if you reach out, I mean, you can reach out through email if you don't like calling people. It's not a, like reach out to a child therapist, child psychologist, whoever you want to talk to and just ask, right? Like people will not have a problem responding to an email and letting you know like, hey, this is the normal behaviors and activities for people in that age range, right? What you're describing either falls in that or doesn't, or we could come in and we can have a free consultation and just talk for an hour and see what we think. Like a lot of people are in the therapy world because they give a fuck and they're not going to have a problem taking their time to respond to you and help you out. Like you don't have to worry about that. Just reach out, ask questions, learn more. Like that's where I think we go from here. I, I don't know that there's any great solution, unfortunately. I wish we could come on here and be like, look, this is what you do and it's all solved, right? But at least we can talk about it. And and I think for parents, not only putting in the work to help our kids, but also finding whatever support groups we need and supports we need to keep going with this. Like you just mentioned, like there's it's a lot of fucking work. I don't want to do it all the time. I joined like a ton of mental health pages for parents mm, on Facebook. That's awesome. And it's kind of bad, but sometimes I'll read stuff and I'm like, whoa, their kid is way worse than mine. <laughs> yeah. And like, it comforts me a little bit. Sometimes we need that. So right? it, it helps though. Yeah, we do. We need supports. I mean, nobody can do this alone. I need a place to go talk about my fucking feelings of not wanting to do this shit anymore. I need a place to go to be able to say the ugly shit, right? I don't fucking feel like putting in the work to save my daughter's life today. It's getting on my nerves. Right. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to tell anybody about that, but it's true some days, right? And I need places to go talk about that so that I, people can say, you know what? I get it. You're not inhuman. I feel that way. This is hard. I don't know. Hopefully, we've helped someone. I really appreciate you coming on, Stephanie. Yes, thank you very much great for coming on and sharing with your us. story. And that's it. You got anything else to wrap up? No? no? No. Yeah, same. Nothing. All right. We'll see you next week. Share this podcast with people in your life who might enjoy it. Check out recoverysortof.com to find our episodes and link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're always looking for new and interesting ideas for topics, sort of. If you have any ideas for episodes or think you have something to come on and talk about, reach out to us.